0: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin... As Texans continue to deal with impacts of a deadly combination of frigid weather and power outages, the New York Times' report on the crisis allows us how, quote, part of the responsibility for the near collapse of the state's electrical grid can be traced to the decision in 1999 to embark on the nation's most extensive experiment in electrical deregulation, close quote. There have been multiple warnings of potential problems, the Times says, quote, but there has not been widespread public dissatisfaction with the system, although many are now wondering if they are being well served, close quote. It sounds a little like blaming people for not realizing they'd been sold a broken umbrella while the sun was out. If media really expect people to actively challenge the promises pushed aggressively and constantly by the energy industry, maybe they could do a little more challenging themselves. We'll talk about Lessons from Texas with Mitch Jones, Policy Director at Food and Water Watch and Food and Water Action. Also on the show, part of the scandal of Black History Month is that it's a month at all, of course with the implication that the contributions and experiences of black people in this country are ancillary to the real history, that it's a class you can skip and still pass the course. The further scandal is that so much of the history we learn in February is not just little known, but hidden. Entire stories of events and movements and lives that, if they were stitched routinely into our understanding of this country, would utterly reshape it. That's true, not least, of media's own history, a problem named and responded to with the 2011 publication of News for All the People, the Epic Story of Race and the American Media, co-authored by Juan Gonzalez and Joseph Torres. We spoke with Joe Torres, now Senior Director of Strategy and Engagement at the group Free Press, when that book came out. We'll hear that conversation today. That's coming up, but first, a quick look back at recent press. Nowadays, corporate media would have you believe they are appalled by Donald Trump. He's a liar and a cheat who distorted our democracy and was rotten to the press. I mean, they had to cover him because he was president, but they held their nose the whole time. And now they can't wait to get back to serious reporting on policy. The only trouble is, if you have a memory longer than a minute, you'll recall that CBS head Les Moonves declared flatly that the ad money and ratings Trump brought the network mattered much more than any harm giving him a platform might incur. Quote, it's a terrible thing to say, but bring it on, Donald. Keep going. Close quote. Or maybe you remember the time that CNN, Fox, and MSNBC all aired an empty podium where Trump was scheduled to speak instead of Hillary Clinton actually speaking. Or maybe you're just paying attention. As press-run critic Eric Bollert noted recently, just a month into Biden's term, CNN has unceremoniously stopped airing daily White House press briefings. They didn't cover Obama's much. In the last six months of his presidency, just 3% of daily briefings aired live. But in early 2017, the D.C. Press Corps collectively decided, evidently, that every Trump utterance had to be broadcast live, even if those briefings were built on deceit and designed to foil honest inquiry, even if he was telling people to inject themselves with bleach or accusing hospital workers of stealing PPE. After one freakish display, CNN anchor John King declared, quote, that was propaganda aired at taxpayer expense in the White House briefing room, close quote. And then CNN just kept on airing them. So the upshot, Obama briefings, not news. Trump briefings, always news. Biden briefings, not news again. Whatever it suggests to you that a news network's rule of Everybody stop what you're doing. The White House is about to make a statement. Only seems to hold if they can expect that statement to be something like a flaming car wreck. Just remember that those are the journalistic criteria they're working with all the time. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. The winter energy crisis in Texas has led to a number of strange scenes, from frozen fish tanks and basements turned into skating rinks to officials claiming that the crisis, in which more than 4 million people were left without electricity or heat, some without water, during a frigid week, and those whose lights stayed on faced eye-popping bills, was caused by the state's reliance on renewable energy sources. Or in the words of Governor Greg Abbott, that it, quote, just shows that fossil fuel is necessary, close quote. Even a critical article on the disaster foretold takes the time to spell out, quote, for the record, no one who is well informed about energy is suggesting that Texas, or for that matter, the nation or the world, can or should operate without fossil fuels in at least the next several decades, close quote. So will that be the takeaway from this chain of events that, by the way, killed at least 80 people, including an 11-year-old boy found frozen in his bed? A round of finger-pointing among officials, followed by a return to the same set piece of debate about regulation versus freedom, a kind of ping-pong match on the edge of a cliff, while regular people wonder if we'll survive the next unprecedented surprise catastrophe or the one after that. Assuming we want to get off this dangerous dime, what type of conversation will move us forward and what ideas need to be left behind? Mitch Jones is policy director at Food and Water Action and Food and Water Watch. He joins us now by phone from Baltimore. Welcome back to Counterspin, Mitch Jones.
1: Thank you, Janine. It's great to be back on.
0: One could spend a lot of time, I guess, with the various factors and blame and history. And there are important stories there. But if we want to prevent such a thing from happening again, then it seems like we need to target the conversation. Like, for example, board members of the Electric Reliability Council of Texas or ERCOT that monitors the electricity grid and that ordered the outages. I hear that they're resigning now. And I'm reading that folks are outraged because some of them didn't even live in Texas. And I'm not really sure how germane that particular outlet of energy is. I wonder if you would talk us through what are the things to be looking at as the main factors that led to this still evolving crisis in Texas?
1: One of the biggest factors in all of this, the immediate crisis anyway, was the fact that Texas regulators never required the power plants in Texas to winterize. And you would think, given that they had major power outages in 2011 in winter, and then came very close to doing so again in 2014, that by now the Texas legislature would have taken steps to winterize power plants. But that wasn't done. Texas remains a widely deregulated electricity market. There's very little oversight over the utilities in the state relative to other states. They aren't required to take these necessary steps to protect reliability because it will harm profits. And the Texas system is designed to put profits before people. And this is really kind of in the immediate. Crisis, the thing that failed most was that you had a lot of fracked gas electricity go offline. You had nuclear power go offline. You had coal plants go offline. And yes, you did also have some non-winterized wind turbines go offline. But the vast majority of the electric load that dropped was from fossil fuels, and it was because of the lack of regulation and preparation in Texas and putting profits before having a reliable grid system.
0: Well, when media like the New York Times, for example, are talking about that deregulation, which I think folks are kind of acknowledging at least set the stage for this storm and the outages around it to be as, as catastrophic as it was, the New York Times explains that, you know, the people wanted that energy deregulation that the energy industry also wanted. And the phenomenon that you just explained, the Times says, quote, with so many cost conscious utilities competing for budget shopping consumers, there was little financial incentive to invest in weather protection and maintenance, close quote. It sounds a little bit like not that the system was flawed, you know, but it just kind of didn't work. And at least partly because people are so cheap, you know, people were trying to, to save money, you know. And and the Times piece also says that the prediction of low-cost power generally came true. In other words, deregulation may have failed in the pinch, but that up until now it was working just fine.
1: That's interesting because the Wall Street Journal You know, that paragon of socialism (laughs) reported yesterday that deregulation in Texas has cost Texas ratepayers twenty-eight billion dollars since two thousand and four. In other words, their research shows that had Texas not deregulated, the residents of Texas would have saved twenty-eight billion dollars over the past seventeen years on their utility bills. So You know, if the Wall Street Journal can see by looking at the evidence and looking at the data that deregulation not only failed to deliver the lower prices that were promised, and this is seen throughout the country, it's seen basically everywhere electric markets were deregulated. You know, if the Wall Street Journal can see that, then I think we need to take really seriously the fact that deregulation failed on its central promise, which was to deliver lower electricity prices to consumers.
0: Well, let's talk a bit about the opposite of that. You know, these folks who are getting really life-altering electricity bills now, the folks who did not lose power, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is saying quote, we have a responsibility to protect Texans from spikes in their energy bills that are a result of the severe winter weather and power outages, close quote. Well, that's sidestepping exactly what those spikes are the result of, you know. But I also have a question. I, I don't want people to be stuck with these crazy bills, but I just wonder, will this failure mean nothing if we then go back to saying look, it's cool to do this off-the-grid thing because mostly you get low rates and then when the system works as intended and you get gouged in times of trouble, well, the state will step in and soften it. It, it. it sort of seems like they get to live by the sword but not die by it and promote a system that doesn't actually work the way that they say that it will.
1: Right. We have got to be clear. The system worked as designed in Texas. That's the really scary thing from the failures because they didn't winterize to the price-gouging prices. And I know you know the big headline grab is that costs shot up to $9,000 a megawatt hour for electricity. The fact of the matter is that's the cap in Texas. And in the immediate wake of the power outages, there were people proposing lifting the cap to as high as $21,000 a megawatt hour. In other words, there were people saying, well, what Texas doesn't have enough of is even a wilder price swing in the middle of a crisis, which is obviously fundamentally absurd. You know, we don't want people to be paying these bills. They shouldn't have been price gouged in the first place. There is a hazard that if the state steps in and takes over those bills, however, that we do get into a situation where the state of Texas is effectively bailing out the utilities and feeding them the price-gouging prices every time a crisis happens. And then there's no incentive because, again, there's no regulation to force the companies to do this in Texas. But there's no incentive then for these companies to take measures to avoid these these, uh, outcomes in the future. And if anything, the way that the market is designed in Texas is designed specifically to prevent these utilities from taking precautionary measures ahead of time because they make their profit from the price gouging. That is where their profit is gonna come from. That's why, and it's not just on electricity, it's on natural gas. You know, There was the president of the natural gas company owned by Jerry Jones, who's also the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, who said they hit a jackpot last week because of price spikes due to an inability to deliver natural gas through frozen pipelines. That's how the Texas system is designed, and we can't fall into a repeated pattern of the government bailing out the utilities in this way. Texas needs really massive reform to its, electric- its electricity system. It needs to get a handle on those electric providers, and we at Food and Water Watch have called publicly, loudly, for a public takeover of electric utilities and power generation, so that it can actually be governed democratically for the good of the people,
0: well, that sounds like right where I wanted to go for a final question, just maybe expanding on it. I was reading your mind <laughs> you know I, I I saw and I this thing from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that they 're going to open a new investigation to examine you know and, and just ugh, a new investigation to examine the threat I, is the scale of the response commensurate with the scale of activity that things need to be on now? And if it's not, what really is called for?
1: The response isn't of a commensurate scale to the crisis and the failure, which also extended to water systems and other systems. Congress really needs to take a lead. I know they've been talking about holding hearings, but they need to do more than just hold the hearings. They need to craft and pass meaningful legislation to begin to, unwind the decades long push driven by the Koch brothers, Enron, and others to deregulate our electric markets, our electric utility industries, and turning them into for profit cash cows for investors. That's where Congress needs to go. It needs to be a federal response, not a state by state response. And at the moment, we're not really seeing concerted effort for that. Some members of Congress, Congresswoman Cory Bush from Missouri in particular, are calling for these sorts of measures. But right now, we're not really seeing that concerted effort. But I hope that in the weeks to come, we will start to see those hearings form and see legislation be drafted in response.
0: We've been speaking with Mitch Jones from Food and Water Watch and Food and Water Action. They're online at foodandwaterwatch.org. Thank you so much, Mitch Jones, for joining us this week on Counterspin.
1: Thank you, Janine.
0: The Kansas City Star recently issued a front-page apology for decades in which the paper, by its own admission, denied the black community dignity, justice, and recognition. Generations of black residents were disenfranchised, ignored, and scorned, editors said, and they got specific about the paper's support for housing segregation, their disregard for civil rights struggle, and their portrayals of African Americans as criminals. The Los Angeles Times also published an apology for its decades of reporting deeply rooted, in its words, in white supremacy. These sorts of steps are welcome as an opening to an overdue conversation that we're nevertheless underprepared to have without really understanding the role media play and have played in portraying race and shaping race relations in this country. Ten years ago, a book stepped into that void, News for All the People, the Epic Story of Race and the American Media, documents both the history of harms done by media to black and brown and native and Asian American people, and those communities' equally deep history of resistance and of telling and sharing their own stories. In December of 2011, Counterspin spoke with the book's co-author, Joseph Torres. He's now Senior Director of Strategy and Engagement at the group Free Press. I started by noting that many people see media as a field that grew up naturally, as it were, and has only lately come under government regulation. But that, in fact, government has always played a role in media from colonial times, and that has always had meaning for black and brown people.
2: That's right. You know, we talk about in the book that the creation of our newspaper industry in our country really began with the creation of the post office. The U.S. Postal Act of 1792 created a post office, and one of the things they said was that they were going to subsidize the delivery of mail. So the cost of delivering letters to folks were very expensive, but that money was used to subsidize for very cheaply the delivery of newspapers throughout the country. And the other thing they said to the Postal Act, that they were not going to have any surveillance of the mail. So what this effectively did, it created a newspaper industry. We went from having it's a few hundred newspapers to several thousand newspapers in just a matter of uh, 30 or 40 years. What it also did, it allowed people of color to create their own newspapers. Despite the horrific discrimination happening, you know, slavery and the horrific discrimination happening in our country, there was nearly 30 African American newspapers created before the Civil War. The Freedom's Journal, the first African American newspaper in 1827, first Spanish language newspaper in 1808, first a Native American newspaper, Cherokee Phoenix, in 1828. So the Postal Act created a decentralized system, a media system that allowed the voices of many to be heard and allowed people of color to actually tell their own stories, which is, is quite remarkable.
0: Well, the book comes at the issue a number of ways. One of them is the missing history of the African-American and Native American, other so-called ethnic press. And another is just the relationship between people of color and the press. Some of the tropes and patterns that we see in media coverage today are older than the country. But it goes beyond bias and underrepresentation, doesn't it, um, to violence. Can you talk a little about that history?
2: We have about a dozen, at least, examples in which newspapers played a critical central role in the lynching of African Americans, Native Americans, the killing of Chinese immigrants in California, Native Americans being driven from their land. I mean, for instance, Andrew Jackson, all the Southern papers supported Andrew Jackson because he was known as the great Indian remover. He was going to remove the Cherokee from their land in Georgia, and the Trail of Tears happened. These newspapers pushed this policy. They pushed... The racist policy that allowed for Indian removal and to help elect Andrew Jackson, the tra- most tragic example, is in Wilmington, North Carolina, where this Southern publisher is a historic figure in journalism guy named Joseph East Daniels, the publisher of the Raleigh News in North Carolina. In Wilmington, North Carolina, in eighteen ninety eight, there was a fusion government between Republicans and free African Americans, a government where blacks actually had leadership roles and prominent places in society. And the Democrats won an election of the state houses, basically took control of the state houses, and they got rid of, by violence, the african Americans leaders in Wilmington, North Carolina. It was a coup of the local government in North Carolina. The person who led that was Joseph East Daniels, the publisher of the Raleigh News. He bragged about it, he instigated it with his newspapers, publishing his outlandish stories, and Joseph Daniel wasn't just some nut job, he was the Secretary of Navy during the World War One. He was the ambassador to Mexico of FDR. But yet journalism and history treats him as a great journalistic figure who stood up against corporate power, but yet they paper over the role he played in the massacre of sixty African Americans. We give a lot of examples of this in, in the book and show the dangers what happens when you have a white racial narrative, when people of color are un, unable to control and tell their own stories, when other people tell our stories, they get it wrong and they cause us great harm.
0: When then there are also so many great stories of papers and of people that have not become, as you say, part of the sort of general cultural memory bank. Uh, I heard Juan Gonzalez tell the story of John Roland Ridge, a Cherokee Indian writer who founded the Sacramento Beach Later sold it to James McClatchy, who worked for him. Though if you look on their website today, there's no mention of John Ridge, the Cherokee Indian who was the paper's first editor and publisher. What's a story that stands out for you, and what is the impact of not knowing these stories?
2: Historically, folks have very little knowledge that an ethnic press ever existed mm-hmm. or exists. Still to this day, people are very unaware of, of, of an ethnic press. It's always been true throughout history, but yet the ethnic newspapers and ethnic publications have played a critical role in communities of color. One of my favorite stories, that you mentioned in the intro, was the campaign with the Pittsburgh Courier to try to get Amos and Andy off the air. You know, when radio was first regulated in 1927, uh, all of the most powerful stations in the country, all the clear channel stations basically, were turned over to CBS and NBC. And the most popular radio program in the country was Amos and Andy, you know, blackface, minstrel, show, with white actors. And half of the nation's listening audience were listening to Amos and Andy every night. The Pittsburgh Courier, which was one of the, the most important African-American newspapers at the time with a huge circulation, uh, decided to run a campaign to try to, to ask the Federal Radio Commission to get Amos and Andy off the air. And literally, uh, over the a course of a year, they got 720,000 people to write a petition that was sent to the Federal Radio Commission demanding the program get removed from the air because the racism, the whole hearing to determine whether this program serves a public interest. And the Federal Radio Commission never responded. But it was really the first effort by people of color, really, to try to reform the media and during the broadcast era. People of color have always cared about media policy, have always fought for a just media system, and still, too often, their voices are being ignored. To this day, I mean, people of color only own 3% of all TV stations, 8 percent of all radio stations, and the federal government is about to introduce new rules to allow for further consolidation without understanding the impact it can have on ownership of color. So our voices continue to be marginalized in federal policy to this day.
0: Well, and we have talked on the show recently about the so-called new digital divide, not that we've bridged the old one, uh, but between those who have access to a high-speed Internet and those who only have phone access, who are overwhelmingly poor people and people of color, who have... Access to a kind of second tier restricted internet that the FCC has said is not going to be subject to the same regulations such as they are that govern uh, internet connections through broadband. Here's something where a media policy can have racial impact even though there's nothing written in the law about race per se.
2: Whenever technology comes along, it fundamentally changes the media system. It creates new industries, whether it's a telegraph, radio, cable, now the Internet. And the government has a central role. Does Does it regulate to allow the voices of many to participate, or does it turn over control to the hands of a few? People of color have always argued that it should be controlled by the hands of many. The media should not be consolidated and controlled by the hands of a few, but the voices of many should be able to participate. We need an open Internet to make sure that we can tell our own stories.
0: Finally, are you surprised by the response to a book that is in some ways a a call-out on what's going before, saying these are aspects of history, these are people, these are outlets that have been missed, that have not been engaged? And it's being very well received. It's a New York Times bestseller.
2: I think that there is a hunger for this information because while most people do not like the media, people of color despise the media because of the harm it has caused historically and I think there's a hunger to understand how this has happened. And I think one of the things about the book that I think people walk away from is that there's always been heroic figures fighting for a just media system, that the fight going on today, that they're not alone, that there's been other heroic figures like Ida B. Wells and Pedro Jake Gonzalez. This is a long arc, and they're part of it, and I think they should take great strength from the Frederick Douglasses of the world and the folks who came before them.
0: That was Joe Torres speaking with Counterspin in 2011 about the book News for All the People. It's still available from Verso Books. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by Fair, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on Fair's website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin.